Hey everybody, welcome to Sunday School Shorthand. We're going to try this with video as well as audio. Uh, you can find these kind of recaps of Sunday School both here on the church's YouTube page as well as uh, on our podcast, The One Prez Pod. Tasha and I try to do these uh, weekly after we have taught Sunday School, so whoever has taught Sunday School is going to be doing these for you. We've added this video component. So if it interests you and helps you, that'll be great. So if you're following along on audio only, you may want to have your Bible handy. We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So we did 1 Thessalonians last month. We're going to finish off 2020 with 2 Thessalonians. So before we start, let's open with a word of prayer. Holy God, we pray your spirit would descend upon us as we do your work this day, as we consider your word. We thank you for the saints that came before us, who guided us, and we pray that you would be with us in the same way you were with them, giving us wisdom and strength and faith, courage and dignity. Help us to love others as we love ourselves. Help us to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a couple of words about Second Thessalonians before we get underway. Um, and this is just kind of some, some housekeeping, I suppose, about it. So uh, 1 Thessalonians was seen as the oldest letter in the New Testament. It's the first one that we have from Paul. Almost every scholar agrees that it was written by Paul. Uh, so there's a lot of consensus there. That is not the case for other letters that are ascribed to Paul in the New Testament. One of those is 2 Thessalonians. There is disagreement about whether or not this letter comes to us from the Apostle Paul or from his followers. Uh, why would people disagree? What, how would they know? Nobody was there watching him write it. We don't have the autograph, which is what the original letter is called. So how do you know? Why do people think uh, that some letters are definitely written by Paul while other letters are maybe not or definitely not written by him directly? Well, there's two things that help scholars uh, deduce this. The first is simply writing style. Uh, you know, you can look at something I've written and look at something that Tasha's written, and if you read enough of it, you could probably tell uh, which one of us wrote it. You've heard enough of our sermons and seen enough of our stuff that you could probably deduce it pretty quickly. The same is true for Paul. Uh, his writing style and letters that uh, scholars are highly confident are his can differ uh, sometimes spectacular, spectacularly from letters that were written uh, or ascribed to him. So one is the Greek, and then the other is theological themes and images. Uh, Paul speaks very clearly in certain letters about aspects of faith, but then maybe seems to contradict himself or maybe seems to de-emphasize those same ideas in subsequent letters. That's the case here in Second Thessalonians where theological themes that he hit pretty hard in 1 Thessalonians are kind of minimized here, which makes people wonder if he actually wrote it and if it was a contemporary letter of the original. So for our purposes, we're going to go with the school of thought that says Paul did indeed write this letter and that it does follow closely on the heels of 1 Thessalonians. That seems to be kind of the 60-40 consensus, is that in all likelihood, uh, this was written by Paul, uh, and was uh, written fairly close to 1 Thessalonians. So we're going to go with that. You know, I don't think it much matters, to be honest with you, who wrote which letter. Um, they're in Scripture, and so that means we have 
what's called the doctrine of inspiration, which is that the Holy Spirit is alive and present in Scripture in a unique way. I certainly believe that the Holy Spirit was present as the canon was put together in 325 A.D. And so the books that we have are the books that we're supposed to have. So while it's kind of a novel conversation to have about whether or not Paul actually wrote stuff, uh, I feel confident in saying that the scripture we have is the scripture we need. So I move forward, whether Paul wrote it or not, with 2 Thessalonians as being something valuable and important for me and for my faith. So I tell you this stuff because I think it's interesting because you should know that there's these types of conversations that happen around the Bible, uh, but not in any way that they should kind of disrupt your faith or your experience of scripture. So let's go ahead and take a look at 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to, for those of you watching on video, you'll be able to see the passage here. Um, so let's go ahead and look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's contrast this to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, which I've put below in bold. If you're watching along, I'll read it to you if you're listening. So this is 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So a couple of key distinctions here. Uh, first, the idea that in 1 Thessalonians, God is the Father. In 2 Thessalonians, he's our Father. Why does this matter? Well, it certainly conveys a level of intimacy, right? Like if you say he's our father, that's different than saying the father. The father in 1 Thessalonians implies that he's kind of the father of Christ, uh, that Jesus is the son of God. God is his father. Uh, but in 2 Thessalonians, we are brought into that kinship. When, we are, when God is conceived of as our father, uh, then certainly that lends itself to a closer feeling, both to God and to Christ. So that little pronoun there, the change from the definite article to the pronoun, is important um, and uh, I think relevant to what Paul's trying to do. I think it's intentional. I don't think it's a just kind of absent-minded thing. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about is the role of grace and peace. In 1 Thessalonians, they conclude the introduction uh, in God to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace, is what Paul writes. But in 2 Thessalonians, the construct changes. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, the grace and peace which Paul wishes upon the Thessalonian church flows directly from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, you could read grace and peace as coming simply from Paul's missionary team, uh, but here he definitely wants to connect it to his faith and to his belief that these things flow uh, directly from the God whom we worship. So again, a small change, uh, but one that I think is important as you start to think about these things. What more could you wish for somebody than the grace and peace of God in their lives? Then finally, let's do a little historical context here. Um, the Father and Lord. These are words that were most commonly used around the Roman emperor. Rome, of course, was the power of that era. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. 
And Thessalonica was a place where the Roman proconsul for that region was seated. It was a place where justice was dispensed from, and it certainly was a place that would have enforced some pretty fierce loyalty to Rome and to the emperor. Uh, We'll touch more on the consequences of that in a second, but for now, what Paul is doing is reconfiguring the imagery uh, for those Thessalonian Christians that their father and Lord is not the Roman Empire emperor. It is God through Jesus Christ. That's their father and Lord. And so there is only one allegiance for the Christian, and it is not to the state. It is to the God whom we worship. So father and Lord, while we take them as kind of theologically for granted, uh, we should also very much see them, see uh, these words as having a comment about the culture and especially the government of the age. Finally, uh, one little quick thing to say. This is the last appearance of Sylvanus. Uh, he is in First and Second Thessalonians and then kind of disappears from the letters. So we don't know what happened to him, but we say goodbye to him here at Second Thessalonians. Okay, so let's go ahead and move forward. We're going to look at verses 3 through 10. So what's interesting here is, uh, is if you open up your Bible, you will see that this is multiple sentences in the English. In the Greek, this is one very long sentence. So what, we, what should we take from that? What we should take is that kind of the root of that sentence is the idea of giving thanks. Uh, so as you listen to me read it, listen for that, and then think about all the things that come after the idea of giving thanks to God and how those could possibly connect. So let's listen to it, uh, and then we will, we will discuss it. We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Okay, that's a really long sentence. Um, So we're going to kind of go through some key points of it and and walk our way through. Um, But first, you see, we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. So thanksgiving is at the root of this. Everything that's going to be discussed in this sentence goes back and points back to this idea of giving thanks. So they, what Paul says is he boasts of the Thessalonian church. He brags about them to other churches in that region. So think of like Corinth, think of Galatia. Uh, think of those. Think of the church in Athens, um, places that Paul would have been traveling regularly. Ephesus. Um, he brags of the Thessalonian faith, and what does he brag about? This is interesting. He brags about their steadfastness amidst persecution and affliction. So it's clear that persecution is an issue in the Thessalonian church. They are uh, being treated poorly on account of their faith. 
for the Romans, they never could get their minds around uh, Christianity or Judaism. They saw them as one and the same thing. They were the only monotheistic faiths of that time. Pretty much everybody just added the emperor into their pantheon of gods and were like, whatever, we'll worship him, no problem. But not the Jews or the Christians. As monotheists, there's only one God. And so the, to hold Caesar up as a second God was blasphemous and not something that could be tolerated uh, from a spiritual perspective. This led to persecution and suffering uh, throughout the early history of the church and certainly for the Jewish people before there was Christianity. So we it's clear that persecution and suffering was part of what was going on in Thessalonica and that those Christians were staying true to some degree or another. They were remaining steadfast. This is what gave Paul such encouragement. And so then he writes that this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Now, this word kingdom, again, exactly the same word that you would use to describe the Roman Empire. Kingdom and empire are synonyms in Greek, or in the same word in Greek. Uh, so you can translate them either way. Here, uh, Paul is reminding them that their suffering is giving them essentially citizenship in God's kingdom. And God's kingdom, of course, is far greater than the Roman kingdom, which is persecuting them now. So this idea that their suffering uh, leads to something greater is important. And Paul makes that clear, and he's going to make it even more clear now. He said, It is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. So this is very fiery, judgmental imagery. And so I want to talk about this for a second. Uh, I think for us as Presbyterians uh, or people who kind of have an affinity for, for where we are theologically and spiritually in the 21st century uh, as a congregation and a denomination— this is not language we use very often, nor is it imagery with which we are particularly comfortable. The idea of God, uh, of Jesus returning in vengeance and fire uh, to wreak judgment upon those who have rejected the church. But here's the key difference. Uh, right now, from our perch in history and in the United States of America, uh, Christianity is the dominant spiritual force still and yet today. It has been in the West for 1,500 years. So Christianity has been aligned essentially with power for that long. Um, and that is a direct contrast to its place in Thessalonica. It was a fringe niche cult in those days. They had no power, the Thessalonians. They were completely under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and their faith actually made them outcasts. Uh, for us here in America, this is something difficult for us to imagine. Um, the idea that our faith would make us an outcast, that our faith would have significant financial uh, or even uh, consequences on our very lives, that we would be tortured on account of our faith. Uh, so when we think about this, when we think about this idea of this uh, vengeful, wrathful God uh, coming and punishing the enemies of the faith, it's best to only really consider that out of a place of persecution and suffering, not out of a place of essentially power and domination. So I hope this makes sense, the contrast that I'm drawing. But one of the reasons I'm uncomfortable using this language now 
is because it just simply seems oppressive uh, to those around us who are really unable uh, to threaten us in any way in this country. Now, around the world, there remain persecuted Christians in other countries to this day. They would hear this passage very differently than we hear it, and they would hear it much more similarly to how the Thessalonians heard it as a, as a word of hope and a word of promise. They don't wield any power, and so they rely on God to wield that power and to defend them. And that might be in this life or the next, but it's certainly a promise that would have helped to carry them through the difficult days, that those who inflicted suffering and persecution would not have the last word. And so this continues into verse 9. So these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So again, we're getting this end of times imagery, this second coming imagery that is going to put everything in its place. And those who have been afflicted, those who have been persecuted, those who have been abused for their faith here in the present world uh, will not be uh, in the next, and things will be inverted. The powerless will be powerful, and those who are in power will be thrown down. Uh, this is imagery that is common throughout Scripture, the elevation of the powerlessness, the powerless, the elevation of the poor, the elevation of those who suffer. You see this everywhere. And Paul's reiterating it to the Thessalonian church here. That the God we worship is a God of the powerless, not the powerful. So obviously that's something uh, for us to consider here uh, in our own lives and in our own country. So let's wrap up. This is the end of chapter 2, up chapter 1. To this end, we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a little prayer here uh, for his friends wraps up chapter one. Uh, we always pray for you, asking that God will make you worthy of his call uh, and fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith. And the purpose of that is that Christ's name may be glorified through the Thessalonians so that people who encounter them and see them will understand what Christ is and what he means. Certainly an important reminder for us in the church that, uh, that how we live our lives and how we work reflects what we believe about Jesus. So the more selflessly we are, the more loving we are, the more humble we are, all of those things reflect on who we believe Jesus to be. So that kind of wraps up the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. And before I conclude, I want to uh, say just really a, a few words. And I, I talked about this at some length in Sunday school to the group that was gathered about the prosperity gospel, the idea of prosperity gospel. So this is something you see quite commonly in our modern world and in, certainly in America. And it is this. Prosperity gospel is the belief that God wants you to be wealthy. And that your wealth and material comfort is a reflection of the blessings you have received from God. I need to tell you that this is just terrible theology. It's very, very poor. And you can see the poverty of it here in Paul's conversation with the Thessalonians. Their faith is not rewarded with material comfort or blessings. Quite the opposite. Uh, they suffer for their faith. They are materially impoverished for their faith. Faith 
oftentimes has consequences to our material comfort and wealth. Uh, You don't see Paul here making promises that if they just remain steadfast to Jesus, that he will bless them with larger houses, bigger bank accounts, and more wealth, or that they'll never get sick. On the contrary, Paul uses the return of Christ to carry the promises of reward for the Thessalonians. It's the next life in many ways that will carry the rewards uh, for their fidelity and their faith. As we think about being faithful to Jesus, we don't live out our faith and we don't follow him in order that we'll have a nicer house or that we'll have a better stock portfolio or that we'll be elevated uh, somehow into a new financial class. We follow Jesus because he is our Lord And he leads us to God the Father, and we have grace through him. And we understand that following him may have consequences sometimes for our material comfort and our material blessings. You know, Americans are some of the most generous people in the world. We give away more money per person than anyone else in the world, in any country in the world. And I think this better reflects how we should view our material wealth and our possessions than the idea that God wants us to be rich. So again, there's so many places in Scripture where this is emphasized, but as you think about those Thessalonians and you think about what they did and what they went through to establish and root the church of Jesus Christ in their community, it's important that we not trivialize their suffering and their sacrifices by clinging to this idea that the manifestation of faith is wealth. Sometimes the manifestation of faith is the ability to endure persecution, the ability to endure suffering, not a freedom from it. So anyway, that's kind of my little rant about prosperity gospel that I have gone on quite frequently uh, in these past few years during Sunday school classes. But to me, it's one of the more toxic forms of theology in our American culture today. So I'm going to leave you with that. Uh, thanks for joining us. Tasha's teaching Sunday school this Sunday, so she'll have the Sunday school shorthand for you next week. And uh, anyway, thanks a lot. Feel free to email me or call me if you have any questions. Talk to you later. Peace.